Well, if you want to divide people you're with or maybe start a heated conversation, ask people what their thoughts are on expectations. There are some people who are what I call super high expectation people. And there are other people who are no expectation people. Just so I know who I'm speaking to today, how many of you would say you're a high expectation person? Okay. And how many of you are a no expectation person? Okay. So for those of you who are high expectation people, you probably thrive in a entrepreneurial or business environment. You love self-help books. Maybe you're in education where we're trying to raise expectations to raise student performance, but you love the idea of this ladder. It's awesome. It's where you need to go. It's what you need to do. Others of you, you may find your thoughts reflected in the next three slides I have here. This is a quote from uh, Buddhism. Expectation is the root of all heartache. Alcox Anonymous, expectations are just premeditated resentments. Or Tom, who says, happiness equals reality minus expectations. So I'm not endorsing any of those people or sources. I just think that there are some of us who go, yep, that's what I think. I don't have any expectations, so therefore, I won't get disappointed. And for me, when I think about expectations, the first thing that came to mind for me was parenting. I had all these expectations of what it was going to be like to have a child and hold a child and be a parent. And I pulled this photo. This is my son right here, the day that he was born. The day I became a dad. It's crazy. Now he you know, talks back to me and puts me in my place. And he fit inside my arm back then. And I, I had these expectations of how I was going to do as a parent. Maybe you did too if you're a parent. How, how well you were going to do it. You know, what a good parent you were going to be. How you were going to do it different than your parents. And I can remember vividly, my wife um, had just finished feeding our son. I think he was about three or four weeks old, and I, I was holding him. He was sleeping. It was one of those perfect, quiet moments that are few and far between with a newborn in your house. And like any good millennial parent, I was multitasking. I was watching TV, holding my son, and texting at the same time. And I thought that I had a good grip on my phone until I didn't, and it fell out of my hands and hit him right here in the forehead. And he starts screaming bloody murder. My, my wife runs in and she goes, what did you do? And I'm like, why did you first go to that? Like, why was your first thought that I did something? And she paused and she said, what did you do? And I said, I, I, I dropped my phone on his forehead. <laughs> now he's thriving in kindergarten. So I'd like to believe there was no residual brain damage to that. But, but that was a day that I didn't meet expectations. If I think about the exact opposite and not nearly as serious or heavy, I think about when my wife and I celebrate our fifth anniversary. We're celebrating 10 years this summer. And we were in Las Vegas dropping our kids off at my parents' house. And we went to have dinner at Gordon Ramsay Steak in Las Vegas. And that night, I had the single best meal of my life. I mean, I can still tell you what the rib cap steak looked like. I can still describe to you the look of that truffle cheese, mac and cheese. I can't have cheese now, so I'm still remembering the mac and cheese. It was also the most expensive meal of my life, let me just add that. But it was a day that I went in with high expectations and they were exceeded. And anytime you can still remember the taste of something five years later, you know that it was a great moment. And as great as this moment is for me, it's one of very few moments in my life where as high as my expectations were, things exceeded it. See, where I live, I think is where many of you live, and that's here. In the gap between our expectations and reality. This is where we spend most of our time. 
No matter whether you say you're a high expectation person or a low expectation person, what I know about you is you have expectations. We all do. Even those of us who say we're no expectation people, that's more a statement of aspiration than it is fact. Because all of us have them. And all of us are traversing the gap between what we expected and what's really happening. And here's what I've learned. That our expectations tend to shape our experiences. What we expect going in impacts what our experience actually looks like. And so expectations are supremely important. And not just with parenting or food, but with God. And today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about kingdom expectations. That's the title of your, on, the, on your notes today. And I've, I've defined the kingdom of God in this series as this, that the kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of God. It's everywhere where God is king. And this subject, the kingdom of God, was the central message of Jesus. He talked about it 80 different times over his public life and ministry. It was really important to him. And his kingdom and our expectations are the place we're going to live for the next half hour this morning. Typically, when I start a message, I give you a big idea. It's the central thing I want you to remember. But today, I don't have a big idea. I have a big question. And the big question is this. What will we do when our expectations don't match God's agenda? Maybe you cross out you and just put me or I. What will I do when my expectations don't match God's agenda. To explore this question, we're going to look at the life of a man who experienced this. It wasn't a hypothetical. It was real. And his name was John the Baptist. Now, some of us hear that word Baptist and we think of a denomination. And so that's maybe not necessarily a good name for him. Maybe a better name would be John the Baptizer. He was baptizing people and preparing the way for the arrival of Jesus He was the one sent before Jesus. And today we're going to look at his life and I'm going to share with you four lessons from his journey because I don't think his journey is all that different from yours and mine. To do that, we're going to need to plot our Bibles. And so I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew is the first of four accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus Matthew is written by a guy named Matthew, ironically, who was with Jesus for almost all of these events. And John, who we're going to meet in a second, if you remember the Christmas story, if you were around for that or have been around for that, John and Jesus are connected through their moms. John's mom is Elizabeth, who is married to Zachariah, and Elizabeth is the cousin of Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. And so they're in some ways distant family. I never get the whole first, second, third cousin thing right, so I'm not going to try to do it, but I think there may be second cousins, but I could be wrong. So Matthew chapter three, we're going to learn about this guy named John the Baptist. It says, in those days, John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interesting, same message Jesus preaches. For this is who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, which sounds comfortable, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. It sounds like that show Naked and Afraid, but with, with, with the clothes on. 
So then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is the words of John. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now jump down to verse 13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee, where his hometown of Nazareth was, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him from doing so, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, saying, let it be so, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Remember that. We'll come back to that in a second. And then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The first lesson we learn from John's journey is this, that Jesus identifies with us before he goes to free us. Jesus identifies with us before he goes to free us. One question that might come to mind for you, and I love asking the question out loud that you're thinking in your head because it kind of just connects us together as I'm sharing. One question that might come to mind for you is, okay, John's baptizing in the Jordan River. People are coming to him to confess their sins. People were repenting. So... Why would Jesus need to be baptized? He had nothing to repent for. He had no sins to confess. Why would he get baptized? He's not like Kevin and Kat and Roger and Rebecca, who all had sins they confessed. Who all shared they were going a different direction and a wrong direction, and they turned around and started going Jesus' direction. Why would Jesus get baptized? And it's a a phrase I, I told you to remember in Matthew 3, verse 15. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, what Jesus is doing is he's beginning something. He's identifying with the humanity that one day he's going to free. And he's saying, I am going to connect with you in the middle of your sin and your brokenness so that I can set you free from it. And he was baptized to show what he was starting that day. So that's why Jesus is so unique. He's different from Buddha. He's different from Muhammad. He's different from Joseph Smith. He's different from whoever the guru is that's number one on Amazon right now, selling books. Jesus identified with the people he came to save. He lived a perfect life, and then he died for them. And Buddha didn't do that. Muhammad didn't do that. Joseph Smith didn't do that. Only Jesus did. And because of that, that's why his death is so significant. That's why these folks were baptized. Not because they're good people, but because of what Jesus has done for them. That when he was buried and risen to life, they were buried and risen to life. So the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, he says, Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by baptism into death in order, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's what happens in that water with John, is Jesus is giving us a sneak preview of what he is going to do. 
And that's why I think Jesus stands out in all of human history, that you don't have a distant God in Jesus who doesn't understand your experience, who doesn't understand your struggle, who doesn't understand what you're going through, who doesn't understand the gap between expectations and reality. No, he knows it all, and he can sympathize with it, and he's done what it takes for you to be set free from it. That's where this story begins. And then this little interesting thing happens that I think is just... Well, it's really the thing that I'm most envious of. I know that you shouldn't be envious, and so I'm just confessing today that I am. But I'm just so envious of John. He baptizes Jesus, which has to be the story of all stories to tell, you know. And then it says that the heavens were opened. The actual language is much stronger. It says the heavens were ripped open. Like you tear a piece of clothing in two. The heavens were torn open, and the spirit descends like a dove on Jesus. And then this voice comes from heaven and says these words, this is my beloved son and him I'm well pleased. This is the phrase that all of us want spoken over us. I sat with a young man this week who never heard a blessing like this from his dad. And we talked about the way that impacts his life still today. See, Jesus, before he performs any miracles, before he does any healing, before he shares any great sermons, at the very beginning of his public life, his father says, this is my beloved son, and in him I am well pleased. And even then he identifies with us, because this is what we all long to hear. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. And in you I am well pleased. And if you've followed Jesus, if you're in him, if you've gone public with baptism, all of those things are a sign that this phrase is available to you. That for us who've put our faith and trust in Jesus, God speaks over us the same words he spoke over his son. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. In him. Not not by everything you do, because he's not pleased with everything you do, nor me. But in us, who we are, he's well-pleased. That's powerful. I could go home on that, but I won't. I still got 20 minutes to go and a lot more to talk about. So if you have your Bible still, I want you to go to John chapter 3. We're not going to John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible. We're going just after that. John chapter 3, verse 22. So that's the first moment we see John with Jesus. This is the next moment that we see John with Jesus. And here's what it says in John 3.22. After this, after the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus that leads to John 3.16, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there, and he was baptizing. So now Jesus is baptizing. And John was also baptizing at a neon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and so people were coming to be baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. And we'll learn about that in our next section. And it says, now a discussion arose over between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So they all came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you, Jesus, across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And so John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. And you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands here and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The second lesson we learn from John is this, that being a follower of Jesus means life becomes more and more about him and less and less about us. One of the reasons I believe the Bible is true is because it tells us the whole truth about people. It tells us about people with all of their flaws and all of their foibles and all of their brokenness. The Bible could have been written very differently. It could have given us all of these great men and women of God, Esther, Daniel, David, Moses, Abraham, Peter, Paul, and presented them to us as if they were perfect. But it doesn't because they weren't. They were just as broken and imperfect as us. And so this moment with John is, I think, a very human moment because great crowds have been following John. He was the popular one. He was the rock star in the desert, if you've ever seen the musical, Jesus Christ Superstar. He was the rock star. He was the one who had all the attention. And yet the crowds begin to shift from John to Jesus. And the disciples of John go, hey, aren't you going to call the crowds back? Because that's what you do when you have a crowd. You keep the crowd. And John goes, no, they can go. Because that's what this is all about. I'm not the Christ. I'm just the one preparing the way. And then he says these words that are just so ridiculously powerful. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. In your Bible, it might say he must become greater and I must become less. That's what following Jesus is about as its core. It's about us leaving it behind whatever it is so that we can make Jesus more. This is why I think the book, The Purpose Driven Life, sold 50 million copies in the last 15 years. The very first words. It's not about you. And if ever a sentence flies in the face of American culture, it's that sentence. It's not about you. I don't know what God's purpose is for your life. I don't know what your future holds. I don't know what it's going to look like as you follow Jesus into the future. But I do know one thing. Following him will not be about you. And if it is, you won't follow him. You'll just stay where you are right now. See, those words of John, he didn't have to utter. He says in the passage, go back to it, says he must increase. That was John's conviction, but Jesus didn't have to increase. John could have increased. You've been around Christians, followers of Jesus, who have increased while Jesus decreased. People who it was about them, not Jesus. It didn't have to go this way. But John consciously chose, I'm going to make this more and more about Jesus and less and less about me. And it was just as hard then as it is now. And if you're going to follow Jesus, let me just tell you the fine print. It's not about you. And that's why it's so hard. Because the longer and longer you follow Jesus, the more and more be the death of yourself. 
Jesus wasn't lying when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. More of him, less of us. That's why the song we sang was just so powerful. I'm not sure if you picked up the lyrics as you were singing them. Some of us sing words mindlessly. If more of you means less of me, then take everything. Those aren't innocent words. Those are heavy words. Take everything? Like, all on the table? Giving a blank check to God with your life and asking him to write it? To who and for how much? That's hard. But Jesus didn't come to just save part of us. My mom grew up teaching me. She said, Scott, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And that's why what John does is so profound. We'll go back to that moment of John in prison. If you have your Bible still open, turn to Matthew chapter 11. We're bouncing around a little bit today. But I want you to catch the storyline of John's life because it has twists and turns like yours and mine. In Matthew chapter 11, we encounter why John is in prison. John's in prison because he's called out King Herod who had his brother killed and took his wife. Pretty shady thing to do. And so John says so. If you're walking around in the desert wearing camel hair and eating locusts, you have no problem telling the king off. And so that gets John in prison. Here's what happens in Matthew chapter 11. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answered the disciples saying, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The third lesson we learn from John is that when our expectations are unmet, disillusionment is normal. You've been there. You had expectations of something or somebody. You had an idea of how this relationship was going to work or how this season in your life was going to go. And when it didn't, you moved into being disillusioned. You're not weird. You're normal. And that's what happened to John. John had expectations of the one he was paving the way for, and his expectation included war. He expected Jesus to be a general and to overthrow the Romans. And to restore Israel to its power and its majesty and its might. And Jesus wasn't doing anything of the sort. He was ignoring the military and political power. He was introducing a different kind of kingdom. And so John says to him, Jesus, are you the one? Or should we expect somebody else? John is speaking from prison. And that dark cell is a metaphor for where he is. He's disillusioned. I prepared the way for you, Jesus. I preached for you. I baptized for you. I set the stage for you. And you took the stage and you didn't do anything I thought you would do. And if you've ever said, Jesus, what are you doing? You know how John felt. Because it's a place we've all been. And if you haven't been there, one day you will be.
Here's what I've discovered. When we follow Jesus, we start out amazed, but eventually get offended. This is the really fine print of Christianity right here. You see what Jesus said to John? Blessed is the one who what? Doesn't fall away or who is not offended by me. Why would he say that unless he knew that John was offended by him and was taking offense that he wasn't doing what he thought he should be doing? If you've ever sat in baptism waters like that, you know that there's an amazement and a wonder at the beginning of following Jesus, but that amazement can quickly become offense when your expectations are unmet. When Jesus doesn't do what you thought he would do, or he does do what you didn't think he would do. There are many of us that if I asked you, do you agree with this statement right here? This is not what I had planned. Raise your hand, right? You're living it. When you had 2018 in mind, this was not it. Maybe Prescott, Prescott wasn't in that picture. Maybe sitting alone in this room wasn't your picture. Maybe the job you're in right now wasn't in your picture. Maybe you moved to Prescott with somebody and the marriage didn't go the way you thought you would in this season. Maybe you went to college for one thing and now you're doing something completely different. Maybe you thought you'd have this giant nest egg and you're still making ends meet. It's not what you planned. Remember that big question at the beginning? What do you do when your expectations don't match God's agenda? Do you get offended by God? I think there's something in this room, if you were honest right now, you're offended by God. You're angry at him. You held up your end of the bargain. He didn't end up holding his the way you thought he would. And you can't find Jesus alive on earth today somewhere and send your disciples to go talk to him, but you're sending word. What's the deal? What were you thinking? I was sitting in my counselor's office this week talking about this very thing. Because I'm not where I thought I'd be. And I'm wrestling through that. See, just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you don't have these issues too. And that's why I'm so grateful for strong Christian counseling. And I'm so grateful that in the church in this era, we're getting over the stigma that people on on the platform have to have it all together. Because they don't. I'm grateful I have somebody that I can process through these things with. And we were talking, and a passage of scripture came to mind for me. I'm a talker. My wife says, I don't know what I think until I start talking. I'm a verbal processor, so God bless her in the last 10 years. But a passage came to mind. And if you still have your Bible open, I want you to go there. It's in John 21. This has nothing to do with John, but it has everything to do with John. In John 21, we have the very last days of Jesus. And many of us have heard the passage in John 21 involving the apostle Peter, because Peter sure had expectations that didn't get met. That's why he denied Jesus. He betrayed him in his moment of greatest need. And right after they have this conversation about Peter loving Jesus 
and Jesus giving him a calling to feed his sheep, this one verse is stated here, John 21, 18. Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. The fourth lesson I want to share with you this morning is this, that following Jesus means laying down our agenda and expectations. Following Jesus means we lay down our agenda and our expectations. See, I've read this verse probably 20 times before this week, and I always associated it with the end of life. Yeah, there'll come a point when I'm older and I can't take care of myself, so I'm going to have to care for me. So my wife and I said, till death do us part, in richer, poor, sickness and in health. And many of us have this image in our mind that that's what this verse is about. I don't know. I've been thinking about this phrase, he's a follower. Because in our modern culture, this is now put down. You know? People say, oh, he's, he's just a follower. He's so gullible. He's a follower. As if it's a bad thing to be a follower. And inherent in the question of if you're a follower or not is this question. Is Jesus leading? Or are you leading? See, I had reserved this passage and this verse in John 21 for the end of my life. And what I found this week was Jesus saying to me, Scott, are you the one leading or am I? Are we going where you want to go or are we going where I want to go? Let me put it another way. Here's what I really felt like. And I said this out loud to my counselor. And it was one of those moments where I, I said it and I heard it. And then I realized what I was saying. So Jesus was saying this to me, Scott, what if I wanted you to live with that kind of trust and surrender now? What if instead of when you're 80 years old and you can't take care of yourself anymore and someone takes care of you and takes you where you want to go, what if you didn't punt that decision for 50 years? What if you embrace that kind of trust and surrender today? What if you didn't wait till you were 80 to become a fully devoted follower of me? What if you did that today? And welcome to the place where God messed me up. Because I had reserved this kind of devotion to God to the end of my life. And God said, no, I want to start now. I want your trust in me to increase. And I want you to lay down control. And if you're scared right now, it's okay. Because this is the edge of where God takes us in our faith. Where we have to depend on him. And we see if he's Lord of all or Lord at all. And I want to give you a couple next steps to process what I just shared. In the back of your hand, there's three things. The first thing I want to challenge you to do is I want you to identify the place in your life where Jesus needs to become greater and you need to become less. Where's the place where God's challenging you to say, hey, this could be about me or it could be about you, but it can't be about both. 
Where does he need to become greater and where do you need to become less? Number two, I want you to define the gap between your expectations and what God is doing today. Remember that picture at the beginning, those two cliffs? Where is your expectations different from what God's doing? Name that gap. Because until you name that gap, you can't experience God dealing with it. That's why it's so important for this place and for our lives and our collective experience as a church to be marked by radical honesty. So often church is the place where we're dishonest before God and each other. And what that means is that God can't actually do the work he needs to. We have to be honest before him. That's why in the garden, he said to Adam and Eve, why are you hiding? Because he couldn't have the relationship he wanted with them if they were hiding. We have to come to God, not in hiding, but in honesty for him to do the work he wants in us. And then number three, I want you to build an altar of surrender today and every day this week if necessary. We don't use the word altar very often. But throughout the Bible, men and women built altars where they had an encounter with God so that they could have a moment of surrender. And you don't need to come to church to experience an altar. You can build one wherever you are. This week, I went into my backyard and I picked up a couple of river rocks in my backyard as I was processing through this message. And on one of the rocks in my mind, I wrote my agenda, and on the other one, I wrote my expectations. And all of you, when you came in, I think you came in with these two rocks. You came in with your expectations of God, and you came in with your agenda for God. And the problem is, is that your expectations and agenda will always collide with God's. Because you're broken and imperfect, just like me. And God's plans for you are different than the plans you have for yourself. And it's so easy that when that collision happens, we white-knuckle our agenda and our expectations, and we fight for them with all of our might. We cry out to Jesus and go, who were you? And what is this? And what were you thinking? This is not what we had planned. And if we don't go the way that Jesus called Peter to go, what happens is that you'll stop. People ask me, why is that person who has been following Jesus for so long so mean? Why is that person who's been following Jesus for longer than than I've been alive, why are they such a control freak? Why is that person who sings about the, the, the glory of Jesus such a worrier? It's because they've stopped following Jesus. There's a place where they just said, I'm not going any further with you, Jesus. You can't have this area of my life. I won't surrender it to you. The, the favorite moment I've had is your pastor was on Good Friday, two months ago. We were in this place and it was, the Holy Spirit was thick in the room. And we sang this song by Lauren Daigle. And these are the words. I'm not going to sing them because I'm not a singer. I'm a preacher. She said, oh, help me to lay it down. Oh, Lord, I lay it down. Oh, let this be where I die. My Lord with thee crucified. And I didn't realize the significance of this next line because I wasn't planning the sermon yet. Be lifted high as my kingdoms fall. Once and for all. Once and for all. 
the invitation today, I believe that God gave me and I'm now inviting you into is what would it look like if you dropped your rocks? What would it mean if you laid them down? That place you're scared to surrender, the place that you're unwilling to trust, the place where you're living a plan that looks nothing like what you imagine. What if you liked Peter and like John and the millions of other followers of Jesus who came before you said, I'm going to lay down my rocks and his kingdom's going to rise as my kingdoms fall. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.